All right, so we've, we've decided then, as a collective group, that the tabernacle and the priesthood is super cool. So that's kind of what we're starting off with. So if you look on page 73, question one, uh, if you got that far this week, first question, maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe not Chels. <laughs> it's all good. There's no judgment here. That's all right. Okay, good. Well, you're going to be in luck because we'll kind of go through day five together tonight. So there you go. Uh, but the first question of this week was, how does Exodus 28 to describe Aaron's garments? And I think you filled it in. What's, what did you fill in in those blanks? Holy. Holy. And then? Glory. Glory and for? Beauty. Beauty. Yeah, so the, they are holy. So we've already talked quite a bit about holiness this semester. But they were set apart and they were to be used specifically by Aaron for ministry. So I get the idea that he wasn't just supposed to be wearing them anywhere. Like yeah. this was for while he was ministering, which uh, he was <coughs> ministering daily. I don't know. Like, did he get days off? Like, Oh, I guess the Sabbath, did they still? I don't know. I never thought of that. Like, I would assume that they still lit the lampstand. Mm -hmm. It said every day. Every day. So, mm -hmm. I would think no. Mm-hmm. So, and maybe they, I don't think, I think his sons could also mm -hmm. light the lampstand. So maybe they took turns. And then the, the um, incense was every day, morning and evening. But then, and also there was a burnt offering yep. every day, morning and evening. Yep, so... You see all of that. So, but the point is, these were for ministry. He was to wear these. He was definitely to look different. It's the, I love that it describes his garments as for glory and for beauty. Um, so like the spiritual reason behind that would be because it portrays Christ. So for glory and for beauty, that's pretty cool. But also just practicality reasons, I think Aaron was supposed to stand out. So, like, God wanted him to look different. He wanted him to look glorious and beautiful. And he had all the same colors as the tabernacle. So he matched the tabernacle. And that's pretty cool, too, because Christ is the tabernacle. So then you see this high priest dressed in all the same colors. You kind of, like, see all of it start to come together. Um, but I, one thing I thought was interesting was that it's not Moses wearing the special clothes. Right? Like, Moses is the guy in Exodus, you know, and he is the mediator. And next week, when we talk about the golden calf, we're really going to see Moses step in and mediate on behalf of these people. And so he's got a really special job and writing down scripture and giving Israel all of these instructions. And yet, it's not Moses wearing the special clothes. It's Aaron wearing the special clothes. And I don't know, I always kind of wondered, like, is there any jealousy on Moses' part? Like, oh, I'm just, I'm not in the special clothes. But obviously that's just my crazy head thinking things. But what is neat is Moses is up on the mountain during that first 40-day stay receiving these instructions about his brother. Think about it. While Aaron is down at the bottom giving instructions for Israel to go into idolatry, right? Mm -hmm. So this is... I don't know the timing of all of this, but it's pretty close. Like Moses is hearing from God, your brother Aaron, did he know that before? We don't know. It's going to be high priest. And here's what he's still supposed to wear. And here's how you're going to do the ordination process. And while Moses is getting all that instructions, Aaron is down there uh, allowing the Israelites to make a golden calf. 
however that timing works out. But just such a picture of grace. Mm -hmm. Like God is like, he's my guy. He's going to be the high priest, even though he's down there leading Israel in idolatry. I thought that was kind of neat. Um, all right, if you look on, I think we're on the same page, page 73, question three. Let's think through what six items then, according to Exodus 28, 4, were to be made for Aaron. What were the six pieces of clothing? Chest piece. The chest, yep. So chest piece or breast piece. Mm -hmm. uh, what's the second one? I don't know. <laughs> I'd say ephod. I don't know if I say it correctly or not, but ephod. So the breast piece, and we'll go through each of these individually, was like, it had the gemstones on it, so it was like right here over his heart, nine by nine square, I believe is what it said. And then the ephod would be, I have a picture of what these people think it looked like, um, would be like the apron that the priest wore. What's the third piece of clothing that it lists? The robe. Yep, and the robe was blue. And then the fourth piece was... I wrote coat and checker. Yeah, so depending on your translation, it might say coat and checker work or tunic. But it's basically like his linen underwear that was on the inside layer. And then there's two more things. What's the fifth item that was listed? Turban. The turban, yep. So his hat. or And then the last one is the, the sash. Yeah, yep. So we had six items, and then his sons had, um, I didn't write down what they have. Did they have a robe? They at least had a tunic and a sash. I forget where that was. I don't know if any of you guys wrote that down. But they didn't have all the extra special items, like the breast piece and the ephod. That was just for the high priest. So here's their rendering of the high priest. Who knows if they did a good job or not, but... It helps. I'm such a visual person that it just helps me to have a visual. But I, I think they did a decent job. So you can kind of see on that picture, like there's like that white underwear layer, and then the robe, and then the ephod, and then the breast piece on top of that. So we're going to talk about them tonight, going from the inside out. So we're going to talk on the end. Are you looking for the yeah. sons? I think it might be in 30, is it later or is it in that chapter? I don't know, it's okay. Well, we might have to find it later. Um, I know right off the bat it says, these are the garments that they must make. It, when it lists the priests and then it says, um, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't say in the top of 28, does it? I feel like I underlined it somewhere. Uh, uh, verse 40. Chapter 28, verse 40. For Aaron's sons, you shall make coats and sashes and caps. Okay, yep. So they had the tunics, the coat and checker work. So they had that linen layer, and then they had sashes, and then they had, it says, mine says headbands. But I guess it, so they probably all said holy to the Lord. Yeah. Yeah. So they do not have the robe, supposedly, and... They don't have the ephod or the breast piece. So not quite as glorious and beautiful as Aaron was dressed. Uh, okay, so that, that inside layer then was that layer of fine linen called the tunic, the coat and checker work. And if you remember from last week, 
we talked about how fine linen represents righteousness. So the idea here is that hidden beneath every other layer on the high priest, at his core then, dwelt righteousness because at Christ's core dwells righteousness. So you get that picture then of righteousness at the core of the high priest. Then over the top of the tunic, he wore the blue robe. Blue in scripture often symbolizes heaven. So if you remember in chapter 24, when Moses and Aaron and the elders all saw God, there was that sapphire blue under Christ's feet. And it just made me think, no wonder God made the sky blue. Maybe he's like up there standing on the sky, you know, like just cool. So blue is symbolic of heaven. So the idea here then is that the priest wore blue to symbolize that he was simply a foreshadowing of what was really going on in heaven. So, I mean, and all of this is from commentators that are much smarter than I. <laughs> and I did not make this stuff up. Uh, but if you read Hebrews, that is what it says, that all of this is just a shadow of what's really going on in heaven. And that floors me. When I stop to think about what, what we're talking about tonight, it just, it, it just gets super cool. Okay, <laughs> we're going to be saying that over and over. Uh, so then what was at the bottom of the blue robe? You guys remember what the special thing was on the pomegranates and bells. Yes. So we have gold bells and pomegranates made out of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, which is weird. Like pomegranates around the bottom. This fashion faux pas. Like who wears pomegranates? <laughs> and that's why I was like, do they have? Do they hold? How do you yeah. get those to stay on there? Yeah. I know. Do they change those daily? Well, they would have been made out of yarn, so they weren't real pomegranates. Oh, okay. They were pomegranates made out of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn. <laughs> 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 so that way, when he's serving, if he got hungry, he was just that like, like have a snack. What's that? I don't think they would have had that many pomegranates out there. That's, yeah, that's to change them out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's no instruction for changing the pomegranates. <laughs> I love that, though. I love that. That was so fun. So it is kind of interesting. I mean, did you guys, on page 75, question three, I don't know if anybody thought about what could be the significance of the pomegranates. And we're just going to play a little bit of a fun guessing game. But any thoughts on... So I Yeah. I, I put like just the crimson collar of the pomegranate I thought was Christ's blood. Yeah. Is mm -hmm. what I was thinking. Yeah. And then um I wrote down here but I don't know. But then just, uh, like the fruit, I was thinking like the fruit of the spirit. It was like mm -hmm. the Holy Spirit. Yes. But yeah. I may have been fishing for straws there. So but that's kind of those were I don't think you're far off at all. Okay. I mean, because scripture interprets scripture. So if you start to think through where is fruit, and like why why would fruit be significant on a high priest? Yeah. You know? And it's only because of the work of our high priest, Jesus, mm -hmm. that we bear fruit. That we bear good fruit. Mm -hmm. So I totally think that there could be some symbolism there. Um, John 15, 8, Jesus says, my Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. 
I just kind of thought of that, that in the sense of the high priest, like, you know, bear much fruit in the work that you're doing for me. He said he had written there that it has the most seeds mm-hmm. of the root. So I thought, okay, that's um, God wanting to plant the most seeds and get the word spread faster. Let's plant, you know, yes. the seeds and get it going and spreading the word. Yeah. Yeah, and I just thought that, is that isn't there a parable where he talks about, like, you'll produce a hundredfold mm-hmm. or just the significant of seed producing when you get to the New Testament? Mm-hmm. So it is pretty cool that God put chose to put such a high seed-bearing fruit around the hem of the high priest. So I, we don't know for sure what the significance is, but I know there is significance, and all of that makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, I also saw this week something that I had never seen before, and pomegranates are among the fruit listed when describing the prosperity of the promised land. Hmm. I had never seen that. So in, in Deuteronomy 8... 6 through 8, I guess it's Moses describing this, but God is describing the promised land. He says uh, in chapter 8, verse 6, he says, So keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with streams, springs, and deep water sources, flowing in both valleys and hills, a land of wheat, barley, vines, figs, and pomegranates and I was like huh that's really cool that they actually listed them there in the promised land Uh, and actually then when the spies first went into the promised land and then they came back out and you know they brought their bad report of how giant everybody was and there was just no way that they could take over the land they brought back with them uh, grapes and pomegranates so I was like huh that is super interesting And if you keep reading then in Deuteronomy, if I go down to verse 11, it says, Be careful that you don't forget the Lord your God by failing to keep his commands, ordinances, and statutes that I am giving you today. When you eat and are full and build beautiful houses to live in, and your herds and flocks grow large, and your silver and gold multiply, and everything else you have increases, be careful that your heart doesn't become proud and you forget the Lord your God. And I was just thinking about the... The sight of the high priest having pomegranates on him, maybe that was to help them remember where that abundance came from, that it came from the Lord. So, I don't know. It's cool, though. It's neat. So, that, that's how I try to dive in, is just by thinking, how, where else do you see this in Scripture? You know, so it, I can help allow Scripture to kind of interpret Scripture. So then, why the bells? I'm going to be honest with you, I have no idea. (laughs) I don't know what the significance of the bells is. There are some commentators that have some different thoughts on it. You guys have any thoughts on the bells? Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's right where I was too. I don't know why the bells. Um, But, okay, if you think about it, you have a noisemaker and a fruit. So it was to alternate all the way around the hem of the rope. A noisemaker and a fruit, a noisemaker and a fruit. So that made me think of word and deed, because a noisemaker might be like words. So I thought Colossians 3.17, and whatever you do in word and deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. And I might be making stuff up there, but there was a noisemaker and a fruit, and I was like, <laughs> words and deeds. Like, we're just to do all of it for him. 
Um, now, some commentaries say that the bells, who knows, but pointed to Christ because though people couldn't see the high priest working in the tabernacle, they could hear him. Yes. And even though we can't see Jesus today, we can hear him through his word. So I thought that was a cool picture, too, of maybe why, why there's the bells. But bottom line is we don't know. We can ask when we get to heaven. Uh, so if we move on from there, that's the robe. Uh, we move on to the ephod, which was the apron type thing that went over the top of the robe. And we've already mentioned that it was made out of the same colors as the tabernacle to point to Christ. So it had the gold and the blue, purple and scarlet yarn. Now, practically speaking, the ephod really served two main purposes. So any ideas what the purposes were for the ephod? What do you think? What went on the ephod? Yes, the stones. Yes, two onyx stones. Yep, here. And then where was the other thing? Here. Yep. So really the ephod was for the purpose of the breast piece and the stones on the shoulders. Kind of served the purpose of carrying those. So, um, and what was on the, what was on the stones? The 12. 12. Six on each one. Yeah. That's what you're thinking. Yep. And they were in birth order here. Yes. So we had six on one side and six on the other side. And then where else did the high priest carry the names of the tribes? Here. Yeah. On the, on the breast piece right here, which is so cool when you stop to think about it. Okay. So the first thing I love about this <clears throat> is that even though the people were prohibited from entering the sanctuary, they, normal people just couldn't go in there. God made a way for them to enter via the high priest. So if you think about it, every time he went in to serve, every time he went in to light the lampstand or change out the bread or um, do anything with the incense, there were the tribes of Israel on him, on his shoulders and over his heart in the sanctuary. And it just was such a, it's such a beautiful picture of the gospel, really. Because that is how we are carried into God's presence today also, is via our high priest on Jesus. He's the one that takes us in there. And that's the only reason that we are welcome into God's presence. So if Aaron, <clears throat> and we know he is, but if he is a foreshadowing of Christ, then the idea is that Christ carries us on his shoulders, which is the place of strength, and over his heart, which is the place of love which is also super cool. <laughs> and he carried, the high priest carried them there all the time, no matter what. So it didn't matter if one of the tribes was being sinful and not getting along with another tribe. There they were, still carried into God's presence, into the sanctuary, on the high priest, in the place of strength and in the place of love, on his shoulders and over his heart. They weren't just lightly stitched, you know. They were engraved. So you, could, you cannot change an engraving. It was engraved on the stones, and it was engraved on the gemstones that were on the breast piece. What a picture that is of God not being able to lose us. He's not, he's not going to, he can't just unstitch us. We're, it's, it's, it's an engraving. So I think when we think about this and we talk about it, We've got to point to Hebrews to say that this is all a shadow 
of what's truly in heaven, but we also need to take a step back and go, okay, this is the information that God gave us about the high priest. What does he want us to know from this? What is he trying to communicate to us? And all week I just kept thinking, he just wants to communicate, I think, how much he loves us. Yeah. Like the fact that, you know, the, we all love the verse that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Well, I've had this visual in my head of why I can't be separated. And it's because I'm engraved over his heart. Mm -hmm. And so nothing can separate me from Christ. So whether or not he literally cares us, carries us somehow by name, like the high priest did, I think it's all symbolic. But the idea is there. He's not losing us. And he's carrying us into God's presence all the time. We have a very active high priest. I think that's another thing that we can walk away from this is like, even though Jesus is sitting on a throne, you know, we know that he sat down at the right hand of God. He's so active. He is so involved. And especially just still working as our high priest, still taking us into, into God's presence all the time. And just a really cool picture. Uh, let's see. So when you think about the, so on each, so the breast piece then, it had those, it had 12 gemstones. So it had three rows, um, or four rows of three going across here, okay? Uh, do you remember in Exodus 19, one of the promises, that Exodus 19, 5, one of the promises that God gave the Israelites if they obeyed him is that they would be his own possession. That can also be translated treasured possession. So pretty cool that the high priest, I mean, I think it's very symbolic, wearing these treasures, right here with the tribes engraved on them. What a cool picture of just God's people being his treasured possession. Uh, in Deuteronomy 7, 6, God <clears throat> says, I chose you out of all the nations to be my, my own possession or my treasured possession. <clears throat> and then Titus 2.14, if we want to go... To the New Testament, I can read it to you. Titus 2.14 is a perfect parallel to that. He said, Christ, um, Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. And that, that phrase, own possession, again, is the idea of that treasured possession. So you see that carryover into the New Testament and us being God's treasured possession. That's crazy to me. Like he values us so much. And he wanted us to see that in this picture of the high priest. The names of the tribes being engraved on gemstones over his heart, over the place of love, where nothing could change that. You know, I mean, you think of all the years that Israel's going to go through in the book of Judges and like the years of idolatry and how many times they turned their back. And yet the high priest continued to carry them uh, in the place of love over his heart because it was engraved there on these gemstones. So just a cool picture of how God treasures us. You are treasure. You are treasure to God. And I think the enemy wants us to constantly think that we're trash. You know, he wants us to think anything but that. But the picture here is of God's people being a treasure to him. We can, we can, I think, find a lot of encouragement in that. So here is your principle tonight. The first one, no matter what is on your heart, you're always on God's heart. 
No matter what is on your heart, you're always on God's heart. That brought me a lot of comfort this week. No matter what's on your heart, you're always on God's heart. That's the picture here of Israel always being on God's heart. It's so easy to feel helpless. It's so easy to feel dejected and sad and down and out and wondering if God really sees us, does he really care? Um, but he does. And I think we just, if we can take a step back and look at the, the pictures that God's given us in scripture, he is, I think he's like screaming at us, like, I care so much about you. You are my treasured possession. And that's why I carry you. That's why I've never let you go. That's why I said that nothing can ever separate you from my love. And uh, we just have to remind ourselves, I think, of those truths. Now, with that being said, I might be getting into the weeds a little bit here, but can't help myself. And you guys look like a really fun group to get into the weeds with. So uh, there are two other places that we see these gemstones in scripture. The first one is Ezekiel 28. If you want to turn there, you might want to see it for yourself. Ezekiel 28, verse 11. We see these same gemstones, except we're missing three here. But Ezekiel 20, 28 is a lament for uh, the king of Tyre. And a lot of people, commentators, whoever, say that it is actually a description of Satan's fall. And so what's interesting is how Satan, if that is it, which I do believe there, it definitely lends itself towards that, how he's described. So it says, uh, okay, beginning in verse 11, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, lament for the king of Tyre and say to him, this is what the Lord God says. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every kind of precious stone covered you. And then he lists uh, nine of them. And then it says, your mountings and settings were crafted in gold. This sounds so much like the breast piece, right? Crafted in gold. They were prepared on the day you were created. You were an anointed guardian cherub, for I had appointed you. You were on the holy mountain of God, <clears throat> you walked among the fiery stones. From the day you were created, you were blameless in your ways until wickedness was found in you. Through the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I expelled you in disgrace from the mountain of God and banished you, guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Really interesting, right? Stop, I mean, to think about that. So I don't know what all of this means. But it fascinated me because it almost kind of describes him like he's among the fiery stones. He's, um, he was on the holy mountain of God. And it sounds so similar to the breast piece, the description with all the jewels. I don't know what God's describing, but something went on um, before uh, Adam and Eve when Satan fell, or at some point, I mean, he was in the garden. Was he still perfect in the garden before? I don't, we don't know. We don't know how all that worked out, but there is some connection with that breast piece. 
in some significance then with the high priest wearing those stones with the names of Israel on them. Uh, I don't know what it would be, I, but there's definitely a connection there. In my mind, it made me wonder, um, you know, if, okay, so I, I'm just going to read. Perhaps God had the high priest wear these particular gemstones with the names of Israel to declare the devil's defeat through the work of Christ. So these stones at some point were associated, it looks like, with, with Satan, and now the high priest wore them. So there's significance there. So the, the, the three that are not listed is row three of the breast piece. And I got this from one commentary that I read. So Satan is missing, missing the third row, which stood for Gad, Asher, and Issachar. Would have been, I guess, the third row of the breast piece, okay? So Gad means attack or overcome. Asher means happiness or prosperity. And Issachar means he will bring a reward. So the, the person that I was reading said, these three are missing from this description in Ezekiel, if it's referring to Satan, because he will not overcome, he will not prosper, and he will not have a reward. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But I thought it was cool. cool. Yeah. yeah, isn't that cool? Yeah. <sighs> Is that too much of the weeds? I was like, do I share all of this? But it's in there, and there's this neat connections. I don't know what it means, but, but there's another place that we're going to see it. It's in Revelation 21. So if you want to look at Revelation 21, all the way at the back, if we start in verse 9, Twenty-one, verse nine. Then one of the seven angels who had held the seven bowls, filled the seven last plagues, came and spoke with me. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife, the lamb. He then carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain. Again, we see a mountain. That was interesting. And showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, arrayed with God's glory. Her radiance was like a precious jewel, <coughs> like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Crystal, the city had a massive high wall with 12 gates. 12 angels were at the gates. The names of the 12 tribes of Israel's sons were inscribed on the gates. Okay, so this time we get the names of the tribes on the gates. Then we keep reading. There were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, three gates on the west. It's kind of interesting because it's set up very similar to the tabernacle Mm -hmm. with three tribes on each side. Yeah. And then verse 14 says, The city wall had 12 foundations, and the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb were on the foundations. Jump down then to verse 19, and it tells us what those 12 foundations were. And they were all the same gemstones. The foundations of the city wall were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first foundation is jasper, sapphire, and a couple of the names are a little different, and it says it's because it's just a translation of Greek and Hebrew, and so you get a little different name. And the other thing I read is that some of these gemstones have just never been seen before, mm-hmm. um, and so they kind of have different names because they're not really things that we come in contact with today. Um, but it's the same list, apparently. That's the, that, and it's the foundation of Jerusalem's wall. And this time, you have the 12 apostles' names engraved in each one of those gemstones uh, as the foundation. 
Isn't that cool? Again, I don't know what it means. I know. But just to think about looking at the Garden of Eden and thinking these gemstones had something to do with maybe Satan before the fall, and then we look at God, what God has for the high priest who pictures Christ with those gemstones with the tribes, and then you go to the very end and you see them again in the foundations of the city wall with the names of the apostles this time. I don't know how it all fits together, but it's neat. <laughs> Any thoughts as I'm saying this? Is the Holy Spirit talking to anybody? <laughs> I know, it is. It's, it's, it's pretty crazy. But I guess I just wanted you guys, I don't know what it all means, but I wanted you guys just to see the various connections throughout Scripture and just God kind of writing this, this continuous story of all of it, you know, coming together. And in the end, someday when we're in that New Jerusalem, we'll understand. I think we'll find, we'll see. Guys, there's the stones. There's the stones. We're going to have a little group meeting. I'm going to meet y'all at one of them. And we're going to be like, there they are. We talked about that in class. <laughs> and Jesus will be there and it'll be so much fun. Cool. All right. Are we doing all right? We're good. Okay. All right. Now, inside the breast piece, then, it was like a pocket, and it held, what did it hold? Do you guys remember what was inside? You had the gemstones on the outside with the tribes. The, I don't know how to say it, but I say it, Urim and Thummim. The Urim and Thummim were inside the, that there was a pocket. So it was behind the jewels in this pocket that was the breast piece. So the Urim and Thummim were used, I Kind of think of them like dice because I don't, I don't know, but we don't know what they were like. Um, if they had like a yes or a no, or if they had some sort of light that emanated from them, or how God used them, but it was used to cast lots. And so when Israel needed direction, they needed to know God's word on something, they would ask a question and use the Urim and Thummim to get their answer. So the cool thing is that Urim get means light <clears throat> and Thummim means perfections or complete truth. So Urim means light and Thummim means perfections or complete truth. <clears throat> so that being said, is it any wonder that God gave the tool used for deciphering his will names that mean light and truth? This was the tool they used to decide what God's word was on a matter. And these, these things, whatever they were, meant light and truth. What do we use to decipher God's will? His word. We use the Bible, which is both light and truth. So we see a major connection here. Psalm 119, 130 describes God's word like this. It says, for the unfolding of your words gives light. We know that God's word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Another one, Psalm 19.8, says the command of the Lord is radiant. And then Psalm 18.30, God's way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. We know God's word is truth. We know Jesus is truth. We know he is the light. There's lots of connections here. 
Jesus is the light of the world. He also is the truth. And yet so is his word, the light and the truth. And yet that's what the Urim and Thummim, that's what the words meant. So I think that's really neat. I also don't think it's an accident that the tool for deciphering God's will rested over the high priest's heart. Where are we encouraged to hide God's word? In our heart. We're encouraged to hide our God's word in our heart. Psalm 119, 9 through 11. So that we won't sin against him. So coincidentally then, under the new covenant, which we know we're all a part of the new covenant, where did God say he will write his command? On our hearts. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. Jeremiah 31, 33. So get this. The light and the truth still rests upon the heart of God's royal priesthood, us, today, through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So we know that we are the priesthood. We've talked about that. We'll talk about that a little bit more later. Uh, and the light and the truth still rests upon our heart because <coughs> it's, it's his word. It's, and he's written his, he says he's written it on our hearts. It's, it's his truth, God's word. Isn't that cool? Okay, so your second principle is, like the high priest, the light and the truth still rests upon our hearts. Like the high priest, the light and the truth still rests upon our hearts. Like the high priest, the light and the truth still rests upon our hearts. I was amazed when I realized that you're meant light and some admit perfections or truth. That's really cool. And just where he had the high priest carry those and kind of thinking about, you know, us hiding God's word in our heart and not sinning against him and how all of that just kind of connects. I thought that was really neat. Any thoughts before we move on? Okay, there's two more pieces of clothing we haven't talked about yet. We haven't talked about the sash, which was practically a way for him to keep all of these layers in place. I think he was kind of wearing a lot of clothing. If he was a middle-aged woman, he probably would have been really hot <laughs> all the time. Um, <laughs> But spiritually, also, I think it symbolizes servitude. So as a, he was to be a servant, I had never seen this. I don't, maybe I had. Well, because I've read through the whole Bible, so I have, but it hit me differently. Revelation 1.13, John sees a vision of Christ. And in this vision, Jesus is wearing a golden sash around his chest. And I just thought, a sash? Like, I, I mean, he uses that when he washes the disciples' feet as a symbol of servitude. And it kind of unglued me a little bit to think about the great king of kings still wearing a sash and just his humility in serving us today. And, you know, he's still, he is still serving us as our great high priest. So that was really cool, thinking about him having a golden, that's what John saw, a golden sash around his chest um, so that's, that's really the sash. I don't think there's a um, big reason to go into it, to it a whole lot, just that picture of servitude. Um, but then the turban is 
another picture altogether. And the neat thing about the turban was what it said. It said, what did it say right here? Remember? On, he had a gold plate on his hat. Holy, holy. yeah. Holy to the Lord. Can you imagine if we all walked around with one of those? Like, like that was a thing. Like you became saved and then you had to wear this hat with the golden plate that said holy to the Lord. We might act a little differently. Yeah. Or, you know, maybe be nicer to people <laughs> if we ought to walk around with one of these on our foreheads all the time. Uh, but Exodus 28, 38 tells us why that was necessary. Exodus 28, 38 says that it will be on Aaron's forehead so that Aaron may bear the guilt connected with the holy offerings that the Israelites consecrate as all their holy gifts. It is always to be on his forehead so that they may find acceptance with the Lord. So you remember how we said that anything God touches becomes holy when we talked about holiness because he is holy. So his holiness just emanates then when he touches something. So the idea here is that God has made the high priest holy and therefore anything and everything that flows through the high priest becomes holy and is acceptable to God. So that's, that's the visual we're getting here of he is holy and so all those gifts coming through him and then going to God are being made holy um, because God said he's holy and so anything he touches becomes holy. Do you, do you see that idea? Okay, that's the idea behind it. But I love that in a couple of the translations, it actually uses the word crown. Like the CSB says holy diadem. Um, I think the ESV says holy crown. In, I think it's in Exodus 39.30. So it might feel like we're not getting very far in Exodus, but it's because all of these instructions repeat themselves in like the last five chapters. Yeah. And so there's no sense in going through those again. Um, but he repeats them, Moses repeats all of them to make the point that they made everything exactly as they were instructed. So I think that's why he repeats everything. But when he does repeat it, he refers to the turban as the holy crown. So I love that because I think it points to the fact that Jesus is both our high priest and our king. So if you think about the high priest wearing a crown, he is the, high, the true high priest is the king of kings. So with all of these different clothing pieces in mind, um, the high priest certainly did not blend in. Like he could not walk into a crowd and nobody recognize him or he just, he was going to stand out. But that's the point, right? I mean, as the holy priesthood of God today, we're not to blend in. We are to stand out. So even though we don't walk around with crazy uniforms on, like he doesn't want us just blending in with the world. He wants us to be different and stand out. The high priest was ordained to proclaim the glory and beauty of God. Remember, it was for glory and beauty. And that's us also. We've been ordained to proclaim the glory and beauty of God. <clears throat> so after you get through all of chapter 28 then, and then you get into chapter 29, 29 is all about the ordination process all about how these guys are going to become holy, how they're going to be declared such, and so that they can serve God. And what I love about it is that none of the ordination process was done by Aaron. All of it was done to Aaron. He didn't do any of it. All of it was done 
to him over the course of seven days. So really hope they didn't have other plans because they had a whole week of being ordained all of a sudden. So if you turn to page 77, it takes you through this whole ordination process. And it was quite the process. First of all, in step one, they had to bring food and animals and they had to bring it to the front of the tabernacle. But then the visual just looks really, it gets really neat when you get into step two. It's Moses that washed Aaron and his sons. It, it says that he was to wash them. It doesn't say that they washed themselves. And that's significant. Then the third step then is Moses was to clothe them. And then Aaron was anointed. And it's not here, but it is later on in the text where his sons are also anointed when it goes through the holy anointing oil. Um, and then they are to offer a sin offering in step four. So they offer a bowl. Um, step five, they, they offer two different rams. So first they offer a ram as a burnt offering. And then the second ram is like the ram of ordination, they would call it. Because that ram, they put blood on. You remember where they put the blood? Right here, right here. The, toe. the toe and the thumb. Yeah, so there's significance there, I think, of just, you know, listening, maybe, serving, maybe, walking, walking. in the way. Yeah, walking in the way. Yeah. Um, it's all action parts. Uh, yeah, and all on the right side. So it's kind of, there's a lot of symbolism behind that, I think. Uh, and then... Um, Oh, goes through crazy stuff, you know, about holding up the, whatever they do. I don't know what all they did. The wave offering. There's just a lot of things that they, they had to do. Uh, but if you flip the page, <clears throat> a really important one then was step 12. For seven days, they had to sacrifice a bull each day as a sin offering for themselves, for atonement. So when you stop to think about it, if you jump to that next paragraph to summarize things, they were chosen. They didn't choose to do this. God chose them. So they were chosen. They were brought before God at the front of the tabernacle. They were washed or cleansed. They were redeemed by the blood through those uh, sacrifices of the bull every day. They were dressed. They were anointed. And thereby they were set apart for God's glory. So do any of those things sound familiar? pretty cool. As ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we've been through a similar process spiritually when you stop to think about it. So then in that next part, there's all those different verses. And what Ephesians 1.4 shows us is that we are chosen. 1 Peter 3.18 tells us that we are brought to God through Christ. So we see these same steps taking place. Titus 3, 4 through 5 tells us that we've been washed by the Holy Spirit and we know we've been cleansed from sin. Isaiah 61, 10 and Ephesians 6, 14 and 15 tell us that we've been clothed, specifically Isaiah, but we've been clothed with a robe of righteousness. So we see our own robe there, spiritually speaking. One day I think we'll be in a physical robe of righteousness. And then the next one, Ephesians 1, 7, tells us that we've been redeemed through his blood. We've been declared holy. And then the last one, 
Corinthians tells us that we have been anointed by the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> so spiritually, we've been through that same process. It is no wonder then that God calls us the royal priesthood, right? And that we've been ordained for his purposes. Uh, and then if you think about just, okay, so that's the whole process that we've been through, spiritually speaking, and then think about what God has called us to do. Like, we start thinking through all the instructions that we have as um, the body of Christ, as believers, we're to offer spiritual sacrifices. We're to tell others about him, make disciples, proclaim the excellencies of Christ. Uh, we're to pray always, make intercession for people. We're to be holy as he is holy. We're to walk in a manner that is worthy of our calling. We're to hide God's truth in our hearts. We're to seek his will. We're to bear fruit. So many things that I think was the responsibility of the priesthood at that time is now our responsibility as believers. So you just see those parallels um, all throughout this. So just as, and I think we've talked about this several weeks ago when we talked about the priesthood, but just as it was God's plan to make all of Israel a kingdom of priests, so has he made all believers today basically a kingdom of priests. We are a part of the royal priesthood according to 1 Peter 2, is it 2.5? I have it on here somewhere, I think, but it's either 2 5 or 2 7. And we are a part of the kingdom of God today, spiritually speaking. But what's hard is that we don't live physically in God's kingdom. We're still in Satan's domain. And so trying to be the royal priesthood in his domain and yet do things for God's kingdom, like it is a fight. It is a fight to try and do what we're supposed to do and serve the Lord and not serve ourselves and not get caught up in things that we're not supposed to be caught up in. Stay focused, you know, take every thought captive for Christ. Like it is an all out war sometimes in my head to do those right things instead of falling into sin and doing the wrong things. But that is where I think our last piece of furniture comes in that we haven't talked about. What's the last, anyone remember what the last piece is that we haven't talked about yet? The golden altar of incense. And what that symbolizes for us, I think, is Christ's intercession on our behalf. So even though it's an all-out fight for us, we have to remember we have a lot of hope in what's coming, and we also have a lot of help. So if you turn to page 79, then, in your notebook, I don't know if you guys got any of you guys got this far, but um, the first question there talks about how or ask how is the altar of incense similar and different from the altar of burnt offering? So I wouldn't have thought to necessarily put these two like compare these two, but they are both altars. There's just a different offering on each one. So do anybody write any similarities or differences down? Yep, both acacia wood. Uh, so there's only gold on the altar of incense. The burnt offering is made of bronze. Oh, that's right. Mm -hmm. But they both have rims around the top, and they both have horns also. So that's a similarity. It doesn't have like the 
Which one? Uh, the altar of incense. Yeah, like for the fire and yeah. everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which they still had to burn incense, but I don't know how they did that. It's not, all those instructions aren't in there. So they both somehow are, one's burning the sacrifices and one is, one is burning the incense. Um, if you move on then to question two, um, how often, well, we mentioned this earlier, how often was the high priest to burn incense on the altar? Morning and evening. Yep, when he, at the same time that he tended the lampstand. Okay, question three. So according to Psalm 141.2 and Revelation 8.3 and 4, what does incense symbolize in those passages? Hmm? Prayers. Prayers. Yes, it's symbolic of prayers. So I love that it's called an altar and because prayer is an offering and sometimes it is quite the sacrifice to sit and make yourself pray, right? Mm -hmm. And you know, if you look at other scriptures, like we're to give a sacrifice of praise. Mm -hmm. And so you just see some of that carry over with this being an altar and representing prayer. Um, <clears throat> And then if you go to question four and you look up Hebrews 7.25 and Romans 8.34, if incense is symbolic of prayer, why was it so important that the high priest offered daily incense before God on behalf of the people? What do you think that high priest's daily offering could have symbolized at this altar of incense? So it's the high priest who pictures Christ going up and offering intercession yeah it, yes yeah so there's really a double meaning i think with the altar of incense first it represents our prayer and praise to god which is a beautiful aroma to god um, psalm 141 2 says may my prayer be set before you as incense uh, and then the the other side of this though is christ's daily intercession for us before the Father. And just what a special, sweet thing that is that I don't think we really stop to think about very often. <clears throat> if Christ, if, if the high priest is symbolic of Christ, then it's just such a beautiful picture of Jesus going in before the Father and interceding for us on our behalf. You guys, there is help. <laughs> There is a lot of help. There is Christ interceding. He is ministering for us. With He's going into, I think that's the big picture here, is he's every day, just think of him going into the Father's presence, carrying us on his shoulders, the place of strength, over his heart, in the place of love, into the Father's presence, interceding on our behalf, on our behalf, like that he thinks that much about us and caring for us like that. That should encourage us. We really stop to think about that. There are some marvelous things going on in heaven right now that we have no idea. And we feel so alone sometimes. And then just spending a week looking at all of this and thinking like God is fighting for us. Jesus is interceding on our behalf. Can't give up. I gotta keep fighting. He's fighting for me. He's done so much for me and he's interceding for me even now. That's just so encouraging. So I hope that encourages you.
And that's my last principle, is that Christ isn't just thinking about me. He's fighting for me. Christ isn't just thinking about me. He's fighting for me. Christ isn't just thinking about me. He's fighting for me. If you stop to think about it, wouldn't you fight for something that was your treasured possession? I would fight for that. Like, I'm not going to let just anyone take my treasured possession. That puts a little spin on things. You think about him fighting for us, interceding for us, praying for us, helping us, there for us. And yet, sometimes we don't accept his help, right? But we just need to accept his help. We need to stop, use it, allow him to be our strength, you know, allow him to carry us in his love. So, thoughts on that? What do you guys think? It's a cool picture. Does it make sense? Thinking about the high priest and his role and how that pictures Christ. And yeah, it's pretty cool. I'm going to read you my summary, my, my weekly reflection. How is, the time, how is the time in the word encourage you this week? I'm going to read you what I wrote. This is what hit me. I said, he is for me. He is not against me. I think that's so clear when you stop and look at this. No matter what I do or how I feel that day, I am a treasure in God's eyes. And that's so important. It's like no matter what I do, no matter how I feel, because we feel a lot of things, we are still a treasure in God's eyes. I am forever etched over the heart of my Savior. That's just, that's just amazing. Stop and think about that. I am carried into God's presence as he makes intercession on my behalf. I have an active high priest. That's pretty cool. You guys are all quiet. You're just taking it in? <laughs> Have I done too much talking? No. Let you guys talk more? No. It's a cool picture. I just kind of like rest in that picture of Jesus just carrying me for a little while, just taking me into God's presence. You know, you can't get rid of me. I'm etched into his heart forever. <laughs> I'm not going anywhere. It's just neat. So I just my reflection of the week I thought and just what a privilege it is I think like Israel had to go through a lot of steps mm-hmm. to get right and like I just wrote you know how easy that we can go through prayer and ask for forgiveness and repent and just um, I think it's something I took for granted and after looking at this that really was just convicting to me like yeah. how how easy Christ made it for yes. us like just his work and it's an honor yes you know I should honor to want to live my life for him because of that like it's it's just it's such a privilege so true I love that yeah he has made it so easy for us yeah I love that that's mm-hmm. cool mm-hmm. any other thoughts I think we're about there we're done early <laughs> well I'll pray you guys are all being quiet on me so <laughs> I'll let you go a few minutes early. <laughs> Father, thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you just for the pictures that you've given us here. And it's so encouraging just to think of the high priest and how you designed his clothing and how you designed it to picture Jesus who loves us so much and you who love us and just 
we are your treasured possession, which just absolutely floors me, Lord. And I just pray this week that you would protect these ladies from thinking anything differently. Pray that you would protect us against the devil's schemes to get us to think that we're some sort of trash instead of your treasure, Lord. Um, I just pray that your word would continue to come alive for them, for me, um, that you 